0: Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question, in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton. To get notices of our new Bible examination programs, Go to our website, whtt.org, and enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right-hand side of the website. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're continuing on in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be starting in chapter 11, verse 4. And this is all about the definition of faith, and as we like to do, we'll
1: open with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this day and for this many blessings that you've given to us, more than we know and can fathom. We thank you for your word, and we ask that you help us to learn it better this time, and to grow in our understanding of you. May it go to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.
0: Amen. Thank you, Leslie. And welcome, Mark.
2: Well, thank you, Tom. It's good to be back with everyone. We are starting off with this long list of uh, heroes from the Old Testament. And let's begin by reading uh, chapter 11, verses 4 through 7, please.
1: By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. By faith Enoch was translated so that he did not see death and was not found because God had translated him, for before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith.
2: Great, thank you very much. Now this paragraph is talking about those who lived before and during uh, and right after the great flood, or Noah's flood as we call it today, from Abel right there after the Garden of Eden, uh, right up through Noah himself. And faith in the context of this letter, means confidence in unseen things. That's kind of the key statement in verse 6 here, that one who approaches God must believe that he exists. You cannot see God. I mean, you could see Jesus. These people had not seen Jesus, apparently. They must have confidence in a God that they cannot see or touch. And he's using the example of the confidence that these people had from their scriptures. Abel is the first one mentioned. The original record of this is in the fourth chapter of Genesis, verses 3 through 5. Abel and his older brother Cain brought their offerings. Abel brought, animal offerings from his flock. And Cain, who was a farmer, brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. But God regarded Abel and his offering, but had no regard for Cain's. And we don't know. I mean, we have a very synoptic account of this, just a few words. And scholars over the centuries have written volumes about this with all kinds of different opinions about it, but the source for our letter is the Greek Old Testament, and it reads a little bit differently than our other translations. In chapter 4, verse 7 of Genesis, in the Septuagint, it says, Have you not sinned if you offer it rightly without dividing it rightly? So there... There may have been some ritualistic uh, reason for Cain's sacrifice uh, being rejected, but we frankly don't know all of the detail on this. But Abel did well. We know that. Jesus refers to the blood of Abel the righteous in Matthew 23 as he is
1: berating
2: all the leaders of the Judean nation at that time. He uh, appeals to the blood of Abel and lays blame for all of the blood of the righteous of God's people at the feet of the leaders of Judea at that time. John also refers to this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. Cain killed his brother because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So we know that God looked with pleasure on Abel and his gifts. There's apparently an association that's quite strong between righteousness and faith, which would fit right in with most of the books in the New Testament. God told Cain after he murdered Abel that the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground back in Genesis 4. And there were many by the time this letter to the Hebrews was written who had been unjustly, Uh, slain, particularly among God's people, and they appeal to God for vindication. In Revelation 6, the soul of the martyrs cry out loud for vindication and are told they must wait until the full measure of martyrs is complete. We believe, in fact, that this was the great tribulation that was uh, about to begin as this letter to the Hebrews is being written, and uh, the vast majority of first-century Christians who stayed within the borders of Rome were, in fact, uh, put to death and added to this full measure of martyrs. After Abel Enoch is mentioned, again, we have a, a very, very short account of Enoch in the book of Genesis We know that his father Jared was 162 years old when Enoch was born, and then when Enoch was 65, he became the father of Methuselah. He walked with God after the birth of Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's from the fifth chapter of Genesis In the Septuagint, it says Enoch pleased God instead of Enoch walked with God. There are a couple of books attributed to Enoch, and in fact, the book of Jude in the Bible quotes from one of the books of Enoch. And these are uh, quite interesting. The recent movie on Noah's flood draws in heavy part from the book of Enoch And a lot of Christians didn't like the movie because they'd never read the book of Enoch, but a lot of the stuff that's super weird in the movie actually is right out of the book of Enoch. It's a very apocalyptic book. talks about the watchers and uh, so on and so forth. So there's a lot more in Judean tradition about Enoch than has come through in our Bibles today. But He served as an example, as did Abel, uh, by walking with God, trying to please God. And the apparent conclusion of that is that he did not have to physically die. God translated him directly into the spiritual realm, which also is pointing towards confidence in that unseen spiritual realm, into which Enoch was translated the audience of our letter certainly had a desire to please God but they had to walk with God so to speak and not deny Christ at this hour of trial that had come upon them and so they needed to follow uh, Enoch's example Noah is uh, mentioned next I can't remember if he's uh, Enoch's grandson or great-grandson, but anyway, he's in the direct line. Noah is also mentioned as being a righteous man like Abel and as walking with God like Enoch. But Noah stands out in this particular context because he had confidence when God described something that no one had ever seen, which, of course, is the flood. Noah took God at his word, even though he had no physical evidence that what God said would happen would actually happen. But he he made all the preparations. He acted upon his confidence in the unseen, and his faith then provided proof of God's promises coming true, obviously, in in quite a horrible way. Noah is considered a hero to modern Jews and many Jews through the ages have written a lot of good things about Noah. Noah is used in the New Testament also by Christ as a warning to that generation of the Judeans of sudden judgment and Peter talks about Noah's passage through water as a picture of Christian baptism and describes Noah as a preacher of righteousness. So these are the first examples that are mentioned. And, and again, in our context, as we've mentioned in a lot of our previous studies, this is to encourage them to lay hold of the new age of the spiritual temple that God is building to replace the physical temple which will be destroyed very soon for all times, never to be rebuilt. They needed to stake their claim in the new age that was dawning, not go back to the old age that was about to be completely and utterly snuffed out. Are there any other thoughts down through verse 7? If not, let's uh, read verses 8 through 12, please. And we'll proceed now forward into the time of Abraham.
1: By faith Abraham obeyed. He was called to go out to the place where he would afterward receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a foreign country. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man, And him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore.
2: Great, thanks. So, Abraham here is a very critical figure. He is considered the father of the faithful. And followers of Christ are children of Abraham not physically descended from him in most cases but no one can become a child of God without having confidence that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah that God had promised and was God and those who have that confidence are children of Abraham by faith just as Jesus threatened that God could raise up children of Abraham from rocks. A Judean in the first century would probably feel warmer about a rock than they would about a Gentile, and yet here we all are. Abraham is our father in that sense. He was living in what would be uh, southern Iraq today, maybe southeastern Iraq uh, near the Indian Ocean. And... God tells him to get up and to go to a land that he knew nothing about. They didn't have the Internet. They didn't have the travel channel. They didn't have photo albums or slideshows. So he had no way to visualize this far-off land of Palestine that God was going to send him to. But he yet he got up and left everything that he knew and went into this other place far away that he was to receive as his inheritance he had no idea where he was going and no way to really do uh, research about it genesis 15:6 says he believed yahweh and he reckoned it to him as righteousness so again we see the connection between faith or confidence in the unseen and righteousness we can't achieve our own righteousness through good works we have to achieve our righteousness by having confidence in the unseen things of God and again if if the uh, Jewish writings are heavy in things about Noah you can imagine that they're way even heavier in things about Abraham Because to this day, even non-religious Jews are really glad of their descent from Abraham. And, of course, they think that entitles them to all kinds of things that they have no right to. But that's another story. But uh, moving beyond all that, the New Testament writers also hold up Abraham as an example of faith. Paul invokes this in the third chapter of his letter to the Romans. And in the fourth chapter, he uses Abraham in the Galatian letter. Uh Stephen began his defense before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem by talking about how God appeared to our father Abraham and reciting his, the example of him having confidence in things that he could not see. And then also his confidence in the posterity God had promised to him, even though he and his wife uh, were barren and had no children up into old age. So what Abraham did was truly extraordinary for his time, and it serves as an extraordinary example for all times. Even though God promised this inheritance to him, Abraham never took possession of any of this land. He never held a deed to any more than one burial plot, which he bought near Machpelah, near Hebron. Herod later built a huge monument there uh, at what they believe was this site. But other than that, Abraham did not own any of Palestine, even though this was the land that God had promised to him. And our writer is going to uh, explain this. His hopes were not fixed on a physical city or place tied to the physical world. He was looking for a spiritual city with eternal foundations planned and built by God, which, of course, is the new Jerusalem from the book of Revelation. It is a synonym for many, many things, for the body of Christ, the Living temple, the kingdom of God, it contains many other symbols, the tree of life, the water of life, the light of the world, the city set on a hill that cannot be hidden, and and so on. We could go on and on about that. But this was the very city our author claims Abraham really looked forward to as his rightful inheritance. This, of course, would disappoint many Israeli citizens today who have taken deed to land that they didn't pay for and that they have no right to. But uh, Abraham himself never looked to a deed of real estate as the fulfillment of God's promises. This uh, heavenly Jerusalem that Abraham looked forward to is available to the audience of this letter it wasn't available to Abraham but it was available to the readers of this letter because of the completion of Christ's high priestly work that he's been talking about in chapters 9 and 10 all men and women of faith can now come and be enrolled in the new Jerusalem as citizens of equal standing with the Judeans. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive in that city, as Christ mentions uh, in Luke 20 and other places. He's not the God of the dead but of the living. These promises Abraham looked forward to are the same blessings that could be received by the audience of our letter. So they had it better in many ways than Abraham. In Leslie's translation, Sarah's faith is also mentioned here regarding having offspring. There are different manuscripts, and uh, most conservative scholars believe that it's still talking about Abraham. It's mentioning Sarah's barrenness. As another example of Abraham's faith, but there are some versions that switch and talk about uh, Sarah's faith. And I don't think it's a real important point. I just mention it as kind of a Bible trivia, but Abraham and Sarah, as far as their physical age, they were already as good as dead as far as having hope of a, a family. And yet God gave him. Physical offspring and made him the father of many physical nations, but most importantly, he became the father by faith of all of those who are in the kingdom of God for all times. All right. Anything? Yeah, about Abraham. Yeah.
3: In the whole you know, chapter eleven, which is uh, just a marvelous story on faith and a real convincing, you know, argument that the author made. Uh, and, and I guess it's one of the most quoted, set, probably quoted evangelical chapters anywhere in the Bible. Uh, I don't know anything that gets quoted more often than the stories about faith in this chapter. And we, of course, have three or four different Bible translations on our desk and all kinds of other ones that we can take on and look at down the line so we can look at any translation we want. But... Back at the time of the writer, it, it seems to me that that uh, they were making a, a wonderful sales case about the, the history of the ancient people and their faith to sell faith in Jesus as their mission and calling on, you know, calling on past history and facts and so on. Uh, but my question is, what did people in the time of this writer really have to look at? I know that synagogues, supposedly had a copy of some kind of scripture on some sort of a scroll, handwritten scroll. And also I'm aware that the individuals didn't have much of anything. They they only learned at the uh, synagogue at, at, uh, at the meeting and then went home. And didn't, they didn't have a scroll at home. I wouldn't think very, very many did. Can you treat this a little bit as to how much knowledge an evangelist out in the field would have of the ancient scriptures to rely on. Is the use of scriptures largely more of a sales presentation selling Christianity than it is an accurate portrayal of history of ancient people? What is your feeling about that?
2: Well, as we've tried to point out through this, both the author and the audience of this letter were familiar with the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint exclusively. That's the only version that is quoted from anywhere in this letter. And yes, any synagogue community of Israelites anywhere in the world, they wouldn't be able to form a synagogue unless there were ten males of the congregation, meaning they hadn't been disqualified for one reason or another and they would pool their money to get a set of these scrolls which as you've mentioned were incredibly expensive a hand copied book was almost a priceless thing uh, in the first century as i mentioned if you go to colonial williamsburg and they are recreating 1776 a a bible printed on a printing press but yet hand bound cost the entire year's earnings of a successful yeoman farmer to purchase a Bible printed on a printing press. So that, I mean, that's $90,000 today. So they were incredibly expensive, but how much more were they in relative cost when they were all hand copied? So, uh, yes, it... You usually only had access to these in a synagogue, but virtually every synagogue would do whatever it took to obtain a copy. They didn't waste money on buildings. There are no known synagogue buildings outside of Palestine before the 2nd or 3rd century A.D. All of their money went to buy those scrolls. That was their real treasure. And you can see they had a special burial place for the old worn-out scrolls in each synagogue community. Those scrolls were their most valued possession, far more than any building, real estate, uh, furniture, or anything like that. But each synagogue community would have had an entire set. And I do believe the Septuagint is fairly accurate. It was translated into Greek, around 300 years before Christ, so it gives us a snapshot of these scriptures before they had a chance to be tampered with. The Masoretic text, which became the foundation for our modern English Bible, actually was heavily doctored by Jews for several centuries after Christ, before the Roman Catholic Church began using it as the uh, source for their old testament so the septuagint is a priceless gift from god that has come down to us you know in pretty good form from the third century bc and it represented a pretty complete and accurate i I believe it's far more than just uh myths or old stories i believe that these people that we're reading about uh truly existed uh physically and that the the book gives us an accurate account, although it's not intended to be an exhaustive history or an exhaustive science text, but it is rather intended to provide a covenantal history of God's relationship with his people Israel and his ultimate purpose to completely recreate his people Israel into a people of faith rather than a people of blood.
3: And was the Septuagint also done on scrolls?
2: Yes, I believe so. They called uh, books or codecs are kind of bound like books rather than scrolls. And I don't believe they were in very common usage uh, before Christ, although they might have. I've forgotten when the other method of binding began to be used in addition to scrolls.
3: So then, before the Septuagint, the words were basically remembered. It was no, oral account, or how, how was it?
2: No, the Septuagint came from Aramaic scriptures, which were restored, recompiled, edited during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, when they came out of Babylonian captivity. Now, ninety percent stayed behind in Babylon and became corrupted to one degree or another by the uh, pagan religions of Babylon. But a tiny remnant returned to Palestine, and their doings are recorded in many of the minor prophets and in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so we see, for instance, the book of Genesis, the place names are not the names that were used use at the time the story took place, but there are the place names that were in use in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. So we can tell that these scriptures were all recompiled. That There had been an ancient Hebrew language which was basically lost when they spent uh, 70 years in Babylon and they absorbed the, the Aramaic language of uh, Babylon or northern Iraq today. And so the people would no longer have been able to read the Paleo-Hebrew, as it's called, scriptures. And so they were all recompiled into the Aramaic that they brought back from Babylon. And then, a hundred and some odd years later, in Alexandria, they would have been, or no, two or three hundred years maybe, they would have been translated from that into Greek. But then that Aramaic, Continue to evolve, and again, the, the Jewish rabbis made a lot of changes to it after 70 AD to justify their new religion without the temple and the priests and so on. And uh, the Septuagint gives us you know, a snapshot of what the Aramaic scriptures looked like before the Jewish rabbis you know, altered and, and began to change them in later years.
3: Thank you very much for that excellent history lesson. Appreciate that.
2: Well, I hope it's excellent. I haven't read up on a lot of that detail in a long time, but that's uh that's the summation as I understand it. All right, well we we're at a paragraph break here, so we can pick up next time at verse thirteen. Are there any other closing thoughts or comments before we close for the evening? I'd like to acknowledge F. F. Bruce followed a lot of his comments in the discourse this evening, in his commentary on Hebrews.
1: Can I get back to the faith issue here? Noah only had eight people on board the ark, and yet he's a pillar of the faith. And Abraham was sort of an oddball that believed in God, and yet he's a pillar of the faith. The odds are great, for someone who does have faith in the midst of everybody else in the world. Well,
2: yeah, but think about the first century Judean nation scattered Mm -hmm. throughout the Roman Empire. As a whole, the nation had absolutely zero confidence that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. Uh They had no confidence at all. So it was a remnant, just like you've pointed out. It was a remnant, and and the... the audience of this letter is part of that remnant. And so they definitely would have stood out as sore thumbs in their congregation amongst the Judean people there. Uh So I think that's, a you know, an excellent comparison. I mean, it would apply to us today, but think of how much more it would have applied to them in sitting in this synagogue do they continue to needle and prod and say, you know, look, look, he fulfills this and this and this, or do they just sit back, become good members of the synagogue again, and try Uh to weather the the coming persecution without sticking out? But no, Noah stuck out, Abraham stuck out, and these people are being encouraged to stick out and to be thrown out. That's At the end of the letter, he's going to say, let us come out of her, because
1: they will be thrown out
0: if they hold fast to Jesus.